Welcome to the Perspectives Podcast. My name is Bruce. Thanks for coming back. Or if you're a first-time listener, this is a place for cultural engagement conversations around different faith perspectives. Today on the podcast, we have a good friend. His name's John Perini. He's from New Zealand. And so you might have an interesting time understanding his accent if you're from the West. John's such a great guy, and he's a very creative soul. We had the pleasure of serving together in Ukraine for several years. A theme that I'd like to just explore with John, and something that we're going through personally, even as a family, is the theme of transitions. We find meaning in rhythm, and so we get used to the flow of autumn, winter, spring, and summer. We have birthdays, different celebrations throughout the year. Even yesterday, watching the kids, the first bell, the time they go back to school, and seeing the little children all dressed up, carrying flowers and chocolates, uh, especially the little girls, you, you could tell it's opening bell for them over here because they're wearing these huge, beautiful bows, and they're so proud and excited. And the little boys dressed up in looks like they're going to church. It just made me think of how our rituals and our rhythms really give us a sense of stability. And yet we know each of us through our life, life as a narrative, it's being written, has different chapters. Those of us that read, you begin to notice that a good writer transitions into the next one. They don't just finish abruptly. There's a flow. And like our, our lives as well, when we are coming to the end of a chapter, a season in our life, there are different markers as we age through this life we begin to recognize uh, a discontent or a, a stirring. The rhythm that we were in, in the middle of the chapter, was great. We, we actually think of a Brian Adams' song, Summer of 69. We thought it would last forever, and yet life moves on. And everyone's life is just dynamically moving and changing. And the older you get the more you recognize, you start to look for the signs that maybe the chapter's coming to an end. Maybe my context is going to change. Maybe there's a decision that's weighing that will ultimately change the direction of my life. And transitions are unsettling because they remove us from those certainties. They're often very challenging because they move us into solitude, into reflection. Before we can move into that next chapter, there's really usually something that God's asking, asking us to surrender, asking us to move into. That can be a difficult space. And others can't go through it with us. You know, we can have listening ears, but it's usually something that we personally are needing to process. As we move through these transitions, the uncertainties increase, the stability decreases, and we find ourselves seeking God, if we're believers, until we can really move into that next season. We, we need to hear from God. We need to have some assurances about the decisions we're about to make. As we begin to grab hold of the, some of those certainties, the new certainties, the hope arises, and we are excited to see what is going to transpire. Fear gives way to a sense of faith and anticipation. And then the new chapter arises with new rhythms we need to adapt, maybe to a new space, new friends, new 
relationships, new job. But thank God he's made us so adaptable, and we want to continue surrendering into the new seasons. And I know John, as he shares with us his story, has gone through several as well. He's always been a very creative soul. He's loved music. He's very gifted. To see the way that God is working all things together as he moves through life, not straining and striving, but trusting and exploring. He is now seeing some of the investments in his musicianship, as he calls it, and him and his wife, Ruth, have they've positioned themselves for a really interesting season now as things come together and they have a school. I hope you enjoy his story, but also are encouraged yourself that these chapters, as they transition, as our life moves from season to season, that this is something that God wants to do with us, wants to do in us. It's not as much of an effort towards getting the right decision and having the most wisdom, but surrender and trust and rest that he's with us and he's working all things together. We ultimately are his prize that he's forming into his image. And through these transitions, they really can be powerful seasons and moments in our life where we discover new dependencies and deeper levels of trust, even if it is uncomfortable and we have to do a lot of adapting. Let's bring in John. Mr. John Perini, welcome to the podcast. Oh, great to be with you, Bruce. A real privilege to be part of this conversation. So John and I have known each other for uh, many years. I, I actually didn't count, but I think it's more than 10. Yeah, we left Ukraine in 2010, so that's already 12 years. Well, you're looking better, man. You're, you're aging gracefully. Thank you. I don't think you've aged a day. Uh, that's very kind of you. Well, we're not here to just give each other compliments. We are wanting to <laughs> dive into a little bit of your story. John and Ruth from New Zealand, tell us where you were born and raised and a little bit about your family. So, yeah, I'm guessing your audience is mostly North America and um, understand that the geography of New Zealand won't be that familiar, but basically two islands or two main islands. And I was born in the central North Island. We moved to the very top and I grew up there in a place called Kaitaia, roughly. Got to the end of my schooling, didn't know what I wanted to do and fell into teaching and, and really loved it and met my wife in the far north. And, and then we relocated back to the central North Island on the coast, a place called Tauranga, um, where I studied my teaching. Roughly there, we, we got into, with a common passion for Christian camping, we got into um, youth pastoring in our church and and grew in that. And at the time, I got the opportunity to take some of our youth group kids across on a short-term missions trip to Fiji. That really stirred in me a real dissatisfaction with, with where we were living. Tauranga is kind of like the Bible belt of New Zealand, if you like. I returned back from Fiji, which is roughly third world kind of uh, situation, to Tauranga and had that culture shock of even after just it was three weeks I think a year after that we left to go overseas Ruth's family she's one of six kids they were scattered all over the place one sister married a Paraguayan and so we spent three months in South America and then arrived in Ukraine and grew a resonance and felt like literally that we had a lot to learn but also a lot to give and so God really opened the doors for us 
to, to work there as international teachers. Yeah, that's how we arrived in Ukraine, roughly speaking. What, what were you teaching uh, during this time? Even from the beginning, what were you trained to teach? My guidance counsellor said, yeah, if you want to do teaching, you want to do it properly, go and study to be a elementary teacher. And so that's what I did. Um, and so when I came to Ukraine, um, that's what I was trained as and found jobs uh, teaching rich Ukrainian kids and the English, but a, a, a British curriculum. As you were talking through your story of getting into teaching, I was surprised I didn't hear the word music. You're a really creative, musical guy. When did you know that you were musically inclined? Um, my journey with music kind of started at elementary school. I saw another girl playing the guitar, and I went home and asked my brother to teach me how to play because I wanted to play for the singing group that she was playing for, you know, it was competitive initially. Music in church was a big part of my development and I got to play with my family in small church groups, but I didn't really take it that seriously until I was about 15 at high school, playing in school bands. And then when we left school, we kept our school band playing in the local restaurants. And did I know that I wanted to be a musician at that point? I, I just loved what was happening through music for me. Uh, the, the kind of collegiality or the communication that was happening on a different plane. I know now that I search for in music is that those moments that happen through music that are unplanned and spontaneous. You arrive in Ukraine. You were, were always amazing to me because you were there just for a short while, but you picked up the Ukrainian and they so loved speaking with you. I'd watch them come and just enjoy hearing your Ukrainian language. Uh, an easy thing for you? Um, yeah, so like I said, I was in Paraguay for those three months and I, I got to speak um, to a conversational level um, in Spanish within three months. Um, grew up around Maori language, never really got serious about it until I come home. I think musically, right? Music's a language. And so, you know, that's skills that you develop in terms of transcribing what other musicians are doing. I think that's akin to learning language well, is that you're learning how someone says something, yeah, and shaping your speech like they do. I need you to teach me. <laughs> I've never you're a musician, at, No, I've never looked at language through the, the lens of maybe emotion and connectivity it's always so technical, and I, I didn't like it in school. I didn't like even the English language, let alone learning Ukrainian or Russian. Let's move back to, to something you just mentioned about Māori, and I know that that connects to where you are today back in New Zealand. Can you explain the indigenous um, culture there in New Zealand? So, I mean, so often people talk about their ethnic mix in terms of their percentage, and I guess I've, I've worked out that I'm roughly a third Māori. Yeah, my Māori identity is a little bit complicated. My journey is that my dad, basically through his his Christian teaching, that that they told him to put all the way, put their culture away, all of the imagery and even their language was uh, punished out of them coming through schools in the fifties and sixties. Um, you know, children are disciplined to, to not speak Māori. And so the, the result of all of that was that we grew up with a negative perception of what it meant to be Māori. Mm -hmm. um, all the while, that that sort of yearning in your heart to connect with clearly the positive aspects of the culture that you could see around you mm -hmm. 
like hospitality and genuine care for others and community and ingenuity, you know, things that are uh, inherent in, in Maori that culture. Have been, yeah, that have been, been passed down for generations. I know even in Canada, I think the same experience with the indigenous, that somehow we thought that Christianity, as it came you know, through the vehicle of Christendom, the white Europeans failed to distinguish the good news that emancipates and, and frees and that is so powerful with the cultural trappings that they were bringing along with them. And so even it seems like the same scenario, even the same time timeline as a Canadian myself with the indigenous mm-hmm. and then the Maori, what you're explaining is, is so powerful and it's something I think that we, we need to pay attention to because these constructs are deconstructing. I mean, we must now recognize, particularly those that have the, the financial power or the mobility or the means, that we, we did not bring a pure gospel. We brought Jesus, yes, the message, but it was so baked into these power structures, this way of being, this Western even even mental model. And so it, would it be safe to say that also in the Maori context and culture that they struggle with poverty? Do they struggle with like the indigenous in Canada with, you know, addiction, incarceration, all of the things that come with the world of poverty and being on the margins? Absolutely. So Maori represent about 16% of the New Zealand population of 5 million people represented in at about 60 to 70% of the negative statistics of incarceration, drug use. Mm. So, yeah, I would say it's roughly the same kind of numbers in that regard. In that context of really being shamed for embracing your heritage, that somehow the, the Western clothing, language, you know, mental models, that they're somehow superior. How did that affect you? At some point, did you begin to just fully embrace another identity or like t- tell me about that journey I, I i don't know what that's like yeah i mean i guess i, I, I mentioned my father again because you know he, he was dark-skinned i'm quite fair-skinned um but people obviously identify me as maori you know so they they find it obvious that i am maori but i i don't try and portray that i speak with a fairly refined kind of accent and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, my father would speak about Maori people in pejorative terms. Mm. He would say, oh, bloody budgers, bloody Maoris, you know, trying to take the welfare all the time. And, you know, so I grew up around that and I didn't feel endeared to embrace Maori culture. So much so that when I was among the culture kind of being taught at schools in the 90s, I shunned wanting to sing in Māori, you know, like I, I didn't want that. I didn't feel an affinity for that. And at the same time, my own father, I remember him sitting in front of, of the television watching a young man making a speech with very, very uh, eloquent Māori and him admiring that. Hmm. So there's those kind of those juxtapositions there in my own experience. And so it was definitely kind of complicated and it has been a a process for me and still is for me to unpack those feelings of who I am as a Maori person. So, you know, you know, when we talk about proportions or what proportion are you Maori? Are you fully Maori? You know, I I am uh, fully Maori, 
but I'm also fully all the other things that make me up mm-hmm. from my mother's side. Um, and, and incidentally, you know, my my mum's my mother's mother's family are from Winnipeg, Manitoba. So, um, yeah, the mm. Canadian connection. Um, mm. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 it's not an easy thing to kind of put your finger on. I guess one of the questions I want to throw back into the mix is the whole popular dogma that we have in education here of decolonization. And I, I, I wrestle with that term because how can you rend one part of yourself from another? It seems so fraught with um, a trouble to, to to unpack that to the point where you can safely say, well, that's from a colonial history and that's from a, mm-hmm. a native or a indigenous history. I, I, it just boggles me that. Um, that people think it's such an easy thing to grapple with, and I, I, I can't. I hear you. It's so dynamic, especially as someone like yourself that's traveled and been inside all these different cultures, that culture really is such a powerful influence, and we're being influenced by all the cultures. You know, every time you watch a movie or you go to, a, mm-hmm. you know, visit another country, the, the influence, whether it's cognitive or not, you know, is shaping your perspective and how you view the world. If you can take us back to Ukraine, you're married, you're teaching, and and then there's there starts to be a sense of transition because many of us we go through these, you know, life transitions. Talk me through that process where you eventually came to the po- the point with Ruth to move back. Yeah, so by the time we had decided to leave Ukraine, um, we'd been there around four years in total, or involved in Ukraine four years in total, and it had made a real mark on our hearts. We we really loved the people there. We, you know, I put a lot of effort into learning language to a conversational level, and I really treasure that. It's not something that I take lightly. And obviously, the the relationships and effort that you put into getting to know people, I really treasure that as well. So it wasn't an easy decision. Um, but what really drove us to to thinking about coming home was the whole issue of um, having having kids, and that was a real longing in our hearts. Um, and we'd been trying at that stage for about eight years, and like had zero success. Um, then got a bunch of tests done, tried various kind of sort of DIY over the counter stuff that people tell you, and rah rah. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's an awkward topic and in some ways I feel privileged to have walked through that to empathize with others who, who go through that. We looked at Ukraine at the time as a, as a possibility to navigate uh, medical issues and fertility treatment there, but the corruption that we'd experienced in pretty much every field, that every official field that we'd chased, we were confident that it would be riskier proposition to do that in Ukraine than coming home to New Zealand. Yeah, so that was driving us towards at least coming home to navigate that process. We always had in our mind that we wanted to return to Ukraine based on that kind of heart for for people that we'd developed there. And even the spot that we'd carved out for ourselves, we, we felt really, really happy with our, our home and, and the community that we were a part of. And I guess going back a couple of years after to visit, we underestimated how much a place can move on 
in such a short amount of time. The church roughly dissolved in that time that we were part of and, you know, that you were part of. Um, those relationships were strained and um, people who who were important to us and still, you know, still are now, had moved on to other places and the void that we left was now filled. And, and I think that's an interesting thing that we've observed a few times now that we've transitioned a few times in and out of places. Mm, that life, life really does move on. And I can identify coming back to Texas, you know, after a few years and, or even every visit, you know, 15 years in Ukraine and just not only wow. teenagers, you know, have become adults and have kids or, you know, those that were babies are now greeting you and just the, the physical changes, but also, yeah, those relationships, life is constant dynamic movement. It's interesting how when we leave a place that's important to us and come back to it, like you're mentioning, it can be jarring and, and even disappointing to see that, wow, that chapter has closed. And so I really identify <laughs> with you with that sense of closure, maybe is what I'm trying to say. You sense that and, and then maybe that just affirmed that that chapter was over for you. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if we feel like it's over. There's still kind of unfinished business for us. I mean, I guess partly to do with the fact that we still own a house in Ukraine, mm-hmm. which is always a wild point to raise with friends or new people that you come across. But yeah, you know, like honestly, we still we still really value the relationships and the life change that happened in us mm-hmm. while we were in Ukraine. The, you know, the growing up that we did there, basically. But also now that we have Gabby, you know, Gabby, um, thankfully, um, she was part of, you know, uh, the first round of treatment that we had, fertility treatment, and so blessed that, that we have her. Um, and how, nine. Old is, we how, want old is, how old is Gabby now? Yeah, nine now, and she's she'll turn 10 in November. We wanted to have that experience of being in another culture. We think that's so valuable. So, yeah, in many ways, we can see ourselves coming back for a stretch of time, no promises to anybody, but that's definitely on our hearts and has been the whole time. I, I, I haven't closed the door on Ukraine and I know Ruth from time to time has said, oh, mm-hmm. I really want to be back there. there. There has been a difference. You know, talking about transition again a bit further though, um, for, for both of us, it was a different experience being in Ukraine. I just want to recognize it. Ruth didn't have an affinity for, for language, found the process of putting herself out there and trying language difficult and embarrassing. For me, it was like a big playground and adventure to initiate conversations with strangers and fall over and, and grow in my language ability. So I, I grew much quicker in that sense. And so regarding transition, for Ruth, that represented coming back to something far safer. For me, it, it represented giving something up. But, you know, our experience of Ukraine was different. Yeah, and I, I think it's so important to to bring our spouses into this conversation because it's we're not making these decisions in a vacuum. We're doing them with no. someone that sees the world differently and has different gifts, different vision. It has to be done together, and I really appreciate how you guys approached that and how you did, John, as a husband, too, where you – you guys really made that decision together. You guys are a team. You are moving through this life together. You didn't seem to be rushing or I'm quite impulsive. <laughs> and you guys really seem to be very thoughtful about that. And I'm sure it wasn't easy. 
I know some of the couples listening to this podcast too, where one is very, let's go, let's buy tickets. Let's go move to another country. It's like, slow down there, partner. You know, this is a, <laughs> this is a partnership and I've appreciated that, you know, about your, your marriage. And so now you're in New Zealand, you guys were blessed with Gabby. And the next thing I remember is I see some posts and maybe we talked but you're going back to school. How did that come about? Oh, okay, so arrived back in New Zealand in 2010 with the kind of idealism of, hey, we don't need to work five days a week. We can work three days a week and be very comfortable. We did that, but school has a way. It's kind of a bit of a vacuum. Three days became four and four days became five and mm-hmm. five days became all consuming because I was working at a church school. And so I was there six days a week, you know, and, and, and I had a lot of freedom in my job and, and ability to um, create programs. And I, I had a, a good spot. Church went through a pretty horrendous church split. I philosophically wasn't on board with whoever won at the end and just gave up my job as well um, and went on a bit of a journey. And then in the months that I started a jazz group, I've always had already always had this uh, this hankering for jazz. Grew up not knowing why, but I grew up listening to guys like Larry Carlton um, and obviously his work through Steely Dan as well as um, Arrangement, George Benson, um, even James Taylor. I really grew up um, loving listening to James Taylor. I started a, a small jazz group, really loved that, and, and I grew my own musicianship to a point where I knew I couldn't take myself any further. All the while... Um, there was a point where, might have been 2016, where Ruth got ovarian cancer and we found out that she had stage four ovarian cancer. Um, and she went through a, a real uh, intense chemo regime. It was a very treatable cancer, but very aggressive one. Um, and those sorts of things have a way of sort of changing your perspective as well or um making you reflect on life in a different way. After six months of treatment and surgery, we got to the other side of that, um, maybe six months after that, and Ruth said, what do you want to do with your life? Well, what what do you, you know, what's the result of this for you? What's something that you've always wanted to do? You've looked after me really well. I'd, I'd just love to see you fulfill something in your life that you haven't done yet. And I said, well, I really want to go to music school. <laughs> she said, well, let's do it. So at the time, we owned two houses that we'd renovated, and we sold up and moved to the city. It's pretty dramatic, um, but God really opened the way for us to move from a small hick town uh, to 14 hours drive away in Wellington. You were in this program for how long? Yeah, it was a three-year program. So Gabby was five at the time when we moved to Wellington. Three-year program, um, you know, I was 38 at the time. Um, and studying amongst 20-year-olds who are just killing it, um, super competitive boys, and even the girls were ferocious. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was a great environment to really test your mettle and learn your chops um, and, and get your butt kicked by all these young people. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, I, I really value that opportunity to really – push the boat out and spend six hours a day at the time. Um, probably on my own, I was playing anywhere between two to three hours, mm-hmm. really digging deep into, into the music field and 
you know, like the maths of music and the theory and the history and, and even I just had some really cool revelations faith-wise through music as well, which is just just awesome to see God's fingerprint in every every respect. Yeah, I, we could park here and just talk music. Always appreciated your connection to creative and as a guitar player, you important in our family, Noah, who was just a small little, maybe was he two, three years old, he would come over and watch John play acoustic guitar and just stare. And I remember I have some pictures of it. You just stand there and watch. He was mesmerized by this guitar. And now he plays yeah. six or seven. <laughs> he can play six or seven hours a day, just electric guitar now. And so how fascinating. Oh. I've been studying the, the limbic system as we're working through kind of trauma therapy and how powerful oh. from seven months in the womb, we have these emotional, mm. fully developed emotional components as creative uh, folks kind of get around and and start to enjoy music and creativity, there is something esoteric and something non-cognitive. It's beyond our capacity to measure stuff. There's We've been unified somehow in this created space. I think music somehow resonates through all of us. And that's, so I love that about you, John, just in our relationship. It's like we kind of connect on a level that doesn't have words. <laughs> it's it's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Talking with the piano teacher, and he was talking about how Pythagoras figured out that if you play a C note that built in it into it, you've got your resonant frequencies, your, your fundamentals above that. So you, you've got obviously a C above that and then a G above that. And he figured all this out ages ago. And then a fourth above that and a third above that. Um, and he worked out basically the chromatic scale based on that, that realization. And, you know, if you go to a piano, I don't know if you ever try this, but you can push down, uh, you know, like a middle C and then you can just sort of, hold down not but not play the the C above it and then let go of the original C and it will it will ring at the top note at the, the note that you've kind of held down but not played. And you can do that with a G as well and you can because it's singing along. I joined a barbershop chorus during my time in Wellington and the guy was inducting us and he said, Look, barbershop works based on four parts. But really what you're trying to do is harmonize so well that you get ringing. And ringing is the production or the maximizing of the resonant frequency so that you're not just singing four parts, but the whole group working together ends up singing six parts or more, you know? Hmm. And, and you can literally hear this ringing happening as the voices um, blend perfectly. And he said, look, I'll show you on my phone. He had a of a spectral analysis type of app on his phone. And he, he said to me, we were in a group of like 10 people, and he said to me, okay, you sing this note. And I sung, and I, then he harmonized with me. And you could see on his phone the, the, the next resonant frequency up from what we were both singing jump up in amplitude. And in that moment, I was like, that's Psalm 133. You know, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in harmony. Mm-hmm. Like there's like this hot spirit factor that happens, this kind of next level kind of blessing that's put, kind of like a law of nature. It's built into things. The sum of the parts is more than more than what the parts are, you know? Mm-hmm. Two people producing three sounds. 
yeah, so I, I just was like uh, in awe of creation at that point, you know, just kind of tickling myself with this realization of, you know, God's fingerprint and all of that stuff with resonance, because you mentioned resonance. I didn't realize how much of a creative I was until I kind of walked into a, a room that was filled with creatives and I felt kind of strangely at home. Like, oh, these are my people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that time in Wellington, I developed quite a, a network of people who believed in what I brought and, you know, we, we had a steady stream of work coming in for that and, you know, different projects that people were excited about, dreaming together and I, I had phone calls coming through for, for work up until a year after I moved home. So I grieved that transition because I left that behind a super creative place with an appetite for live music and come back to the far north where everybody's playing reggae, which is fine if you're like completely sold out for reggae, not really interested in jazz. But there are those memes on Facebook where, which says, you know, a jazz musician loads $5,000 worth of gear into a $500 car to get paid $50. Mm-hmm. Um, I get that. I get that. Yeah, I, I grieve that when I come home and that sense of disconnection, even though I was moving home to the north, which should represent coming home. So we, we moved back primarily to be around my mum. She's She was 75 at the time and, you know, needing more support since dad had died about six years ago as well. You know, I don't regret that in that sense. You know, that was the right thing to do. But there was definitely a transition in that point too. Ironically, moving back to where I should feel more comfortable and had grown up, Ruth longed for somewhere that was more Māori. That was uh, a real funny realisation. When she was in Wellington, she got involved in a softball team, which is kind of like, you know, you, uh, a scaled-back version of your baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, she, she's always loved sports, and that was a really good opportunity for her. And she played amongst, you know, a lot of brown people, Samoans, Māori people. Um, and they go, you're, you're Māori, aren't you, Ruth? No, no, you're Māori. You know, they, they adopted her, basically. Mm-hmm. And so coming back to the far north, was a return to something that she identified with more ironically down in Wellington. It was far more metropolitan white culture. Did you feel like you're in a sweet spot now? And can you explain to us what, what you're doing? Yeah. So, I mean, I discovered that passion for teaching way back. I remember kids coming to me at school and, and wanting to learn. And I really enjoyed that process of sharing what I had. I, I, I feel embarrassed about what I was sharing because it was my rhythm was so bad. I know that now. I realized early on, maybe when I went to study my teaching, that God used my music through through my teaching um, to reach people. I remember a guy looking me up, um, and there was no agenda to disciple him, but I ended up baptizing him. And, and that was kind of, not that that happened every time at all, but it was kind of what happened as a result of me being in, involved in music, kind of like a, a coaching kind of vibe about it. And I guess me going away to study music was tied in with that as well because I had a definite sense that if I wanted to be the best teacher I could be, I, I needed to take myself far as I could with my musicianship. And, and I definitely felt like I, I, you know, really pushed the boat out in that sense and and, I, and, and way more confident in understanding the process of, of learning, of what it takes to become a thorough and good musician. You know, like it's it's these concentric circles that kind of sort of push out from the center, but they overlap further on in the pattern. 
you know, teaching and, and music have always been part of my um, my game, if you like. And just seeing these kids doing basically a YouTube curriculum and I just frustrated me. They're showing up at 13 years old, never having touched an instrument, and we expect them somehow to be excellent musicians by the time they leave school. My project is about answering that question. I don't want them showing up at high school never having touched an instrument, particularly if they're gifted with music. I want to find them at eight and nine years old and put around them the structure that they need to become a great musician. So by the time they're 13, they're already flying. By the time they leave high school, they're absolutely monsters on their instrument. So far, you've been doing this for a couple of years now, right? I got my first contract at a elementary school teaching eight, nine-year-old, nineteen-year-olds uh, last August. So, yeah, roughly been in a, a year now, and I have grown the program to be working at six different schools, mm. and I've got some else on board with me. So it's not massive yet. I think I teach about 150 kids a week. Wow, um, a lot of names to remember, but you know I. Every every week, I'm thrilled by the surprises that I get. Mm-hmm. You know, the different kids, and I'm teaching stuff that's ultra simple, which is ironic. You know, I've pushed the boat out a long way, and I'm dialing it back to teaching three chord songs and mm-hmm. single string line picking, or simple drum beats, or simple songs on the keyboard. But even within that, I can see I, I see myself as like a farmer, and I'm sowing seeds and then taking a harvest of the best ones. In education, I believe we've made excuses for average achievement for way too long. I just want to unapologetically focus on excellence and and the people who are talented for a while. Our region, you know, I, I have a strong belief that the talent we have here is second to none, but the challenge is, you know, we're not getting the instruments into the kids' hands soon enough. And, and there's, there's some challenges around work ethic and mm-hmm. um, instability of families and ability to pay for lessons and all of that. So I just want to try and problem solve that. That's my mission for the next 10 years. Mm. And I'm kind of hoping within that as well that some of the at-risk youth that I'm coming across, and I'm seeing that, you know, the emerging signs of that at eight and nine years old, obviously, that, that I can curb some of that. I can give these guys more of a reason to be engaged uh, something positive that they can engage with through music. Um, I can sell them on the the beauty of being playing in an ensemble with somebody else and having that nonverbal communication on that other plane, you know. In short, it's, it's not ultra-faith-based, but again, I'm confident that God will use me in that. You know, that's my heart, that's my passion, that's he, he's... He's birthed in me. That's his fingerprint on my life. And I know that he's alive and well in all those interactions that that I'm having with kids. Yeah, if you were here in my living room, and I was just thinking, as you said, not ultra-faith-based, I'd smack you across the head. You know better. And I know that (laughs) you're bringing your full self, you're caring, you're loving, you're, you're using the instrument as a means and an end. Really get to know these kids and give them value and what better way to foster or to uh, irrigate, you know, those seeds within them that they are mm-hmm. valued, that they are loved, that they're worthy of respect and honor and kind of pull them out of some of these mental models. We, we have that in common, at least with, you know, at Lighthouse that we bring in these kids from the villages that had never 
just held a guitar. And I remember the encouragement in my heart. Like I felt like even God saying, just let them hold stuff. And I'm like, you know, if we're going to have a music space, we want nice sounding songs and, and record cool stuff. And it was like, no, first step is just that they are seen. You know, there's no expectation. They're welcome. They're seen. They're worthy. And you can just see like in their minds, the unlocking of some of these ways of thinking, even if they hold drumsticks, you know, they, they start to picture themselves. Maybe I could be this. Maybe I could be. And I love that initial seed sowing phase. Like you're saying, you're, you're working toward a harvest. Man, God is with us in those initial phases. And those of you out there, you know, you don't need to, you know, produce what maybe the world says you need to produce as success. Like just loving someone and just caring is the is the power of the gospel. I am so looking forward to the next few years as you have this vision to see what God produces. It. We know that it'll be exceedingly abundantly above all we could ask or think. And the hundred and some students that you're investing in now, the harvest, you'll never see it this side. And I, I mean, I hope you do. I'm, but in terms of God's economy, we never, we'll never mm-hmm. really truly know. Just to close here, both Ruth and yourself, you guys have any other thoughts and plans? Or are you just locked and loaded for the, the next 10 years? I was surprised to hear you have a 10 year plan. I, I don't have a one year plan, so <laughs> I'm jealous. <laughs> I don't believe it, man. I, I, I reckon that that's an unfair evaluation of how it is. I feel like I'm way more happy-go-lucky than you. We kind of make decisions like, just go for it. Yeah, so plans-wise, you know, that's not a 10-year plan. It's really not. Um, I guess looking ahead for the Music Academy, you can look it up. That's Tehiku Music Academy. It's really not a lot being done on the website, but it's there, and you can see what we're what we're up to. Well, I've put together a business proposal, actually, sent it out to local businesses to try and generate some sponsorship towards buying a music bus. Our region is spread out two hours north, east, south, west, and you've got a lot of kids that have this challenge of distance. So I was teaching at the top of New Zealand today, and they are roughly an hour and a half drive at least, if not longer, from from the nearest township of eight 8,000 people. And there's some talented people there. So what I want to try and do is address the challenge of, of distance by buying a kind of like a 20-seater, taking the seats out, decking it out with like a electric drum kit, few guitars, keyboards around the side, the PA. You're taking the show on the road. Rock. It's the inner job. Yeah, rocking up and yeah. That's it, rocking up in the fun bus and say, get on board, let's do it. This is the, um, this is the, you know, the like, real vision of John. He wants to be a rock star. He wants to tour. <laughs> yeah, not really. I mean, I mean, I, I have done, done some tour kind of stuff. It was only mediocre and it was fun still. Um, but in terms of like being able to deliver quality music instruction to some of these remote areas, that's really my vision. Um, because we know the centres are well well serviced, we know that they have great facilities, great teachers, great great everything, and yet the hinterlands kind of get neglected because it's hard. Yeah, so I kind of want to even see that grow to where we've got, you know, five buses and a team of ten people. I want to get music grads and pay their study through secondary teaching 
and bond them to be in the area for a little while and grow the music culture up. So that, that's on the music music school front. But on the other front, we've just relocated a house to the top of our sand gene. We bought seven and a half acres of bush-cleared sand and we cleared a building site that looks out mm. to the ocean. And last week we had a 20-ton digger drag our old 1950s house to be renovated up to the top of the hill. So that's going to be busy. I bought myself a six-ton digger and I've been learning to drive that and Ruth's project Veggie Box subscription. So she's two tunnel houses, caterpillar tunnels, I think you might call them in the States. I have, um, I have no been, idea what you're talking about. Come on, man. Growing veggies, man. That's the new world. Growing what? Um, veggies. Vegetables. Oh, I forgot. Vegetables. I forgot you speak funny. Vegetables. Yeah, and the other word that you didn't like from us was Fortnite. Not just a video game. Yeah, you used that word before it was cool. Yeah, yeah, and roster. Remember that? Roster. <laughs> if there's anyone out there that is interested in learning more, I'm going to put the links in the description. And I would encourage you to reach out, especially if you're a believer and you have a missional heart, because it sounds like John's creating a little base right on this ocean for you to come and plug in and serve and, and surf. Yeah. Oh man, yeah, we got we got access to both coasts. We're fifteen minutes from both coasts, so you, there's never a time where you got no swell. That's amazing. Absolutely. Well, Shipwreck Bay, if you're interested, check it out. It's not on my bucket list to come to New Zealand. I I just watched Lord of the Rings whenever I get a hankering for the beauty. <laughs> but uh, man, ha- that sounds really cool. Once you're all set up and you've got the Airbnb going, let me know. Yeah, we built a glamping tent out of our own timber that we milled from the site. So we've already got the accommodation there for you, Bruce. It's there. <laughs> Okay, sounds good. Well, John, thank you so much for joining us. I miss you, and I'm really encouraged to see how God's using you and the different ways our Creator is just emanating through your gifts and your wife. And so may may His kingdom keep coming through you all. Well done. So I hope you enjoy John's story and are encouraged by the mystery of yourself, the way that you've been made the way that we are able to interact with one another without words, through music, through just relatedness, that there is an experience happening available to us, even with God, that is not purely mental, purely logical, but a healthy mind, a healthy soul, is capable of embracing even the mystery that is life, that is relationship, that is love. And I want to experience more of that through friendships, through relationships. It's so much more refreshing when we're just holding this mystery instead of relishing any sense of certainty that causes us to trust in a relational God and not just a bunch of facts. 